Thank you so much, Ivy. Thank you to the Christmas team. Doesn't the auditorium look amazing? And how great will it look on Christmas Eve? Just picture it in your mind. This room filled with people and, and with you, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your relatives, that you've been praying for, that they would come to know Jesus the way you have come to know him too. Imagine how special that night will be. Maybe more special than any other Christmas Eve you've ever experienced. Let's, let's ask the Father to give us that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the word of Christ would run rapidly and spread just as it has with us. Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified in this place and in churches throughout St. John's County and throughout the state of Florida and throughout the U.S. and around the world that Jesus, your name would be lifted up and that your person would be worshipped and that your work on our behalf would be celebrated. And Father, I pray that this morning, by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand in a fresh way how great a love you have for us in Jesus, that he is for us fully God and fully man, the great I am, who by his blood and through his sacrifice has made it possible for us to never die, and to be set free. Lord, set captives free even now. And Lord, give us, by your grace, a deep awareness of our eternal life in him. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's good to talk to Jesus. We could go on for, for a while talking to Jesus. We're going to turn in our Bibles and give our attention to John chapter 8, and I'm just going to read two verses, but we'll be referring to several other passages within the chapter, chapter 8, so you'll want to keep your Bibles open, but let me read John chapter 8, 58 and 59, and, and let's give our attention to it because this is God's word. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's sufficient. It's our only rule for faith and practice. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now we've been walking through during this season the seven great I am's of Jesus. Seven statements in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am. He says, I am the bread of life in John 6, 35. He says, I am the light of the world. In John 8, 12, he says, I'm the door 
in John 10, 9. He says, I'm the good shepherd, John 10, 11. I'm the resurrection and the life, John 11, 25 and 26. I'm the way, both the truth and the life, John 14, 6. And last week, Clint did a great job and helped us understand that Jesus is the vine, John 15, 5. Now, last year, uh, American marketing lost an incredible man, Ron Papil. You know, you know Ron Papil? He always said, but wait, there's more. And so there's two more IMs that we're going to look at this week and next week in true Ron Papil fashion. I don't have any pocket fishermen for you, uh, but I do have two more great I am's of Jesus, and I've just read one of them. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus starts this passage with the words, truly, truly. And it's so important that we learn this morning that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's the point where we're going to learn this morning. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he starts his, his statement with the words, truly, truly. Jesus Christ uses that phrase 25 times in the Gospel of John. And it's used three times in John chapter 8 alone. Truly, truly. Now we live in a world and in a culture that has jettisoned truth, the truth of scripture, the truth concerning Jesus, that's jettisoned truth and a, and a faith and a belief in truth for reason, human reason, apart from God's revelation of himself, or for feelings, uh, the, the feelings of our heart, look within yourself, that's what we're told, rather than looking to truth in scripture. And so it's so important that we know that Jesus, when he says, I am, he's communicating something important about himself, he is speaking truth. Now, some people have said things like this. Well, listen, it doesn't really matter what truth you arrive at. It's just about the seeking after truth. That if you're, if you're really just seeking after truth, it doesn't really matter what truth you arrive at. Is that true? Now, if you're a drowning man seeking after a life ring, like this one, but bigger, something that could hold you up. If you're a drowning man searching for a life ring, it, it doesn't really matter how you get to the life ring. What matters is the life ring. You need truth, something you can hold on to. Some people say, well, there's no such thing as truth, to which you should say, is that true? And if they say, well, yes, that's true, you say, and if they say, well, no, that's not true, then you say, well, then why should I listen to you? There's no such thing as truth. Really? Is that true? 
Some people, some people say that, listen, truth is whatever you sincerely believe. Now, if I take a step off of this platform, what will happen? I'll go all the way to the ground because gravity's truth. It's true. Gravity wins every time. Now, some people would add this caveat and say, well, listen, it's not so much, um, what's, listen, what's true for you is fine, and what's true for me is fine. So listen, you let be what's true for you be, and I'll let what's true for me be. But listen, if we're two people on the platform, and I believe I'll float, and you believe you'll fall, who will be true? We can't both be true. You see how important it is for us to come to Jesus and understand that in Jesus Christ, he alone claims true truth. 25 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, truly, truly. Now, is it possible? Is it possible to focus on Jesus too much? Is it possible to gaze in wide-eyed wonder at the truth of Jesus? Well, Don Everts in his book, God in the Flesh, he says this, Is it impossible to focus on Jesus too much? Quite a question, huh? Is it possible to focus on Jesus too much on our deathbeds? Will we say, I wish I had spent less time looking at the life of Jesus? I'm sure that there are many things that occupy us now that we will one day look back upon and regret spending so much time on. But after considering this question for some time, I don't believe we'll regret a single moment of considering Jesus. I don't think we can ever be too centered upon Jesus, the one in whose life we see our invisible God revealed. After all, the entire Old Testament gazes ahead, pointing to Jesus. The Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles are Jesus-saturated, looking back upon him, echoing him. But Jesus is the point. He is the center. He is the very flesh of invisible God. How could we ever focus on him too much? If Jesus is the truth, we can't focus on him too much. And it's so important that we look to Jesus for truth because whatever you look to to be your highest reality will control you. Jesus says that in John 8. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Whatever you look to, to give you security, significance, happiness, joy, to be the controlling principle of your life. If it's something other than God, it's called sin, and whatever it is, it will control you. It will become to you bonds, chains, if it's not Jesus. 
And the reason that's true is because Jesus alone can follow up his statement, truly, truly, with the words, I say to you. The rabbis of Jesus' day would say, truly, truly, Moses says to you. Or, truly, truly, Isaiah says to you. But Jesus Christ alone can say, truly, truly, I say to you, and have people be amazed at his teaching, saying he speaks as one who has authority. And where did that authority come from? It came from his identity, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. We need to pay attention to Jesus because he alone is the truth who speaks the truth. We need to pay attention to Jesus because he alone is fully God and fully man. He's fully God. Let's look at some verses from the New Testament that teach that Jesus is fully God. So let's start with a few verses of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, verse 5. uh, Paul says, Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all? Who is he? God, blessed forever. Amen. So who is Jesus? God. Okay, good. You're with me. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So who is Paul saying is Jesus Christ? Who is he? God. Now, what about the writer of Hebrews? A different author, the writer of Hebrews in verse, chapter 1, verse 8, says this, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So of the Son, who's Jesus, what does it say he is? God. The writer of Hebrews says this. Okay, Second Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our Savior, Jesus Christ, is who? God. Now for us, living 2,000 years after Jesus... Most of us, having grown up in a culture of a church or a home where Jesus was clearly taught to be God, that does not shock us. Now, for many, uh, many of you probably know this about me. Maybe you don't. So I'm going to tell you, I'm a huge University of North Carolina fan. I love the Tar Heels. They disappoint me. They break my heart time after time. Football, basketball. But I love the Tar Heels. Let me tell you why. 
I was born while my parents were students at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My dad was studying to get his master's in English at the, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And, and while he was studying, I was born. So I was born Tar Heel. Was Tar Heel born? My parents separated when, when I was two, and I never spoke to my dad except one time. I only remember speaking to my father one time my entire childhood into my adult years. And I only remember getting one gift from my father the entire time I was a child. It was a birthday present, I think, but it, I do remember what it was. It was a puffy University of North Carolina vest. You know, one of those down vests? It was awesome. The only gift I ever remember receiving from my dad, and it was a University of North Carolina vest. Now, I grew up, and then I wasn't smart enough to get into University of North Carolina, but I was smart enough to marry someone who did. My wife, Sue Ellen, she graduated from the University of North Carolina. Now, what would it take? What would it take to get me to change from being a fan of the University of North Carolina to becoming a fan of Duke University? What would it take? Knowing all that you know about me, my background with my dad, my, my relationship with my wife, you know, this one flesh union that I enjoy with my wife, a North Carolina Tar Heel graduate, what would it take to turn me into a dookie? Take a lot, wouldn't it? Paul was a Pharisee trained by the most famous rabbi in all the school of the Pharisees brought up from birth, steeped in the tradition of the Pharisees, and taught from birth the Shema, the great prayer of Israel. Hear, O God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Knowing from his earliest days the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The Apostle Paul, the writer of Hebrews, likely likely a priest serving day after day after day in the temple, making the sacrifices that were to make atonement, to reconcile sinful Israel to their God, the priest, a priest, who would have known the great sin of blasphemy, of saying something about God that's not true the writer of Hebrews, and Peter. Peter, a person who was amongst the first men to follow Jesus Christ and walk with him all the way through his three and a half years of public ministry. Peter, the apostle, would have had a front row seat to the entire life and ministry of Jesus. So you have a Pharisee, a priest, and a person who saw everything that Jesus did and said. And all three of them are willing to believe that Jesus Christ is God. 
That is every bit as amazing, if not more amazing, than if I changed loyalties from the University of North Carolina to Duke University. Peter and Paul and the writer of Hebrews would have been the last people to ever say that a man who was just a man is God in the flesh. And yet, you've seen it in the clear teaching of the New Testament that they did believe and teach that Jesus is fully God. Now, at the same time, Jesus Christ Fully God is also, without ceasing to be God, Jesus Christ is fully man. Now we're going to go back to a verse in John chapter 8, and I want you to see something that the Pharisees say to Jesus. It's in verse 41. They said to him, we are not born of fornication, we have one father, God. Now, what's that about? We are not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. The Pharisees, the Pharisees have been listening to claims about Jesus and claims made by Jesus, and they've been investigating the life of Jesus, and they've talked to people in Bethlehem, and they've talked to people in Nazareth, and they've talked to people in Galilee who are familiar with the life of Jesus. And one of the things they've heard in the story of Jesus is that Jesus was uniquely born, that he was born to his mother Mary prior to her ever having relations with her husband, Joseph, even before they were married, Jesus was formed in her womb. They've heard these stories, and so at an opportune moment, they think that they can really get to Jesus with a zinger. We are not bastards. And they totally miss the point of why Jesus Christ would be uniquely born, why Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin, why Jesus Christ would be born to Mary, not being the son of Joseph, but being the son of Mary and the Holy Spirit. And the reason they should have known it is Isaiah 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Jesus Christ was born in a unique way. He was born of a virgin. He was born of Mary. Without ceasing to be God, he took on our humanity being born of the virgin, a human, but born in a unique way without our sin nature, so that, chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 29, he could do this for us. He who sent me 
is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus Christ, God in our midst, fully God and fully man, lives the life that we should have lived. None of us, not a single one of us, has ever pleased God in every single way that his word invites us to live a life pleasing to him. The Bible says things like this, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. The Bible is clear about the life that pleases God. The problem is that none of us have lived it except one, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, fully man, in his humanity, obeys for us, lives a life for us that perfectly pleases the Father in every respect, without sin, fully man and fully God. And as the infinite God-man, Jesus Christ is able not only to live the life that we should have lived but haven't, he was also able to die the death for us that we deserve to die and make for us a sacrifice sufficient to forgive all the sins of his people and make it possible for us to have the gift of eternal life. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, verse, I'm sorry, so, so uh, <laughs> um, Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The problem is that none of us have kept his word, but Jesus has. And so for us to be able to not taste death, Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die. And because of that, when we put our trust in him, he says, I'll forgive all your sins and I'll give you the free gift of eternal life. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a, the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifyingly unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. How about you? Have you made the determination 
from looking at the life of Jesus to say that Jesus is for you, God in the flesh. Have you taken the truth of the gospel, the good news, into the center of your life so that Jesus is for you, the infinite God-man, your Savior, and the Lord of your life? If you haven't, I've told you, Jesus died the death you deserve to die. I've told you, Jesus lived the life you should have lived. And if you'd admit your powerlessness over sin, if you'd believe that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice to pay for your sins in full, and if you'd commit yourself to him as Savior and Lord, he will come into your life. And John 8 says, he will make it possible for you to be set free from all the sin that holds you captive and make it possible for you to not taste death. Won't you choose freedom? Won't you choose eternal life? If you're here this morning and you're amongst the already convinced who is enthroned Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, who's admitted the bad news of the gospel and the good news of the gospel and committed yourself to Christ, if that's true of you already, is it showing? Is it written all over your face in life? Is it showing in your life? What would be the evidence what would be the evidence that Jesus has moved into your life? That he is for you, fully God and fully man? Well, Jesus tells us. In true Ron Papil fashion, Jesus Christ says that there is an eyewitness to his glory. There is an eyewitness to Jesus Christ that everyone in this room should believe and trust in. And particularly that the people in John chapter 8 should have believed and should have trusted. And that is Abraham. Abraham. In verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. How can you tell that the infinite God-man has moved into the center of your life? You can tell that the infinite God-man is beginning to move towards the center of your life because you will begin to rejoice and be glad at the greatness of the salvation he has given us through his life and death and resurrection. What does it mean for Jesus to say, Abraham saw my day. What's the day? It's the cross. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that's the day, his day. The day that Abraham saw and rejoiced and was glad. It's the cross of Jesus that moves into the center of our lives. The most true thing 
the glory and greatness of the cross. And when that moves into the center of the life, it produces joy and gladness, is it? It can. Let me show you when Abraham rejoiced and was glad. Turn to Genesis verse 20, chapter 22. Genesis 22. And here's the day. Here's the day. It came about after these things that God tested Abram and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So God tests Abraham and he says, take your son. Now, for those of you not familiar with the story, Isaac was born to Abram and his wife Sarah very, very late in life. They had been without a child all their lives until they were in their 90s. And then God having fulfilled his promise to Abraham and Sarah, provides for Sarah's pregnancy with Abraham, and she gives birth to a son, Isaac. Imagine waiting all your life until your 90s and then having a son. The love that Abram must have had for Isaac. So Abram rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. What is reigning in the heart of Abram is not fear, not doubt, not unbelief, but faith in the promise of God that he would go in obedience to God and that God would allow him to return with his son back to his servants. Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abram, his father, and said, uh, My father? He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? You see, Isaac understood sacrifice. He understood that God had provided a means of, through sacrifice for forgiveness. He had seen it. And he expected there to be a lamb. Abram said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. 
Then they came to the place at which God had told him, and Abram built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abram stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from him, from me. Then Abram raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, and Abram went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son, and Abram called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Abram rejoiced and was glad. Can you imagine the joy and gladness that filled his heart when he heard the words, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the sun. The joy and gladness when he saw that ram caught in a thicket and he knew that a substitute had been provided for his son. That a way of escape had been provided for him. The joy and the gladness that must have gripped his heart. Oh, dear people, don't you see that Jesus Christ is the ram caught in a thicket that he is God the Son and on the mount of the Lord it has been provided. Jesus Christ is the sinless substitute for our sin and God the Father in great love for you and I laid our sin on him and punished him in our place. And if the truth of that good news moves into the center of your life, oh, the joy and the gladness that could be yours. The freedom from the power of sin. The freedom from the penalty of sin. The promise that you will not taste death, but one day you will live forever without even the presence of sin. The joy and the gladness when you behold the Son slain in your place as your substitute. Oh, dear people, rejoice and be glad for you and I have seen his day. His body given, his blood shed. Where's the lamb? Where's the ram? It's been provided for us in the Son, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, who gave himself for us so that through faith in him we could be forgiven given the gift of eternal life and, and be able 
to rejoice and be glad. Let's pray. Jesus, Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One, fully God and fully man, who freely for us allowed yourself to be caught in the thicket of the cross so that through your life and death and resurrection, through faith in you, we could be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. Oh, dear Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, lift up before our eyes your greatness and glory, that in beholding the Son, we might be filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory, that in beholding the Son, we might rejoice and be glad having seen his day, that like Abraham, we would experience the shock and the awe and the wonder of having been set free. If this morning you find this story of someone substituting themselves for you, drawing you toward the one sacrificed for you, drawing you, you feel like, God, I want this to be true, then you tell him, Jesus, I admit to you that I've sinned against you in many ways, and I'm sorry. Jesus, I behold you, the Lamb, slain in my place. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. Jesus, come into my life as Savior and Lord. Jesus, as we go through this season of Advent, looking ahead to your coming, I pray that we would be filled with joy and gladness because of what you've done for us. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.